Uh, if you're new here, my name's Tim Deal. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm wondering, when was the last time you found yourself angry? About anything, really. Maybe something important or maybe something not. I know for me it was actually last night. Um, somebody asked me, was it this morning? I was like, well, I think I did all right this morning. Um, you know, it was a, a very limited time. Uh, most people were still sleeping. Um, so I think we did all right. But last night, I didn't do so well. Last night, uh, Avenue 46, which is our fourth to sixth grade ministry, uh, they do this great event once a year at Reading Rocks where they, they take the kids rock climbing. And uh, so... You know, I have two kids who are in that range, and they invited a couple of their friends, and so I had a van full of kids. And I go once a year. You know, I, I would love to have rock climbing be something I kind of do naturally, like kind of part of my regular rhythms, uh, but it's not. Uh, it's the thing I do, I, actually never. I, I go there once a year to take my kids. Um, and so this was that one time, and, you know, I kind of knew roughly where it was because, of course, I'd been there a couple of times. But I thought, you know, I've got some kids. It'd be really embarrassing if I'm wandering aimlessly around Berks County. So I'm just going to punch it into Google Maps and trust that Google knows the way. And so I did. And Google let me down in a big way. Uh, I ended up, and I kind of knew, I don't know about you if you've done this. Uh, there, there's another great uh, clip I could show if, you, if you're a fan of The Office. There's this clip where Michael uh, follows the GPS into a pond because it tells him to turn, and he never stops to think, like, should I really do this? Sometimes I get that way. I don't know about you. So the GPS is like, oh, go this way, and I'm going, this doesn't seem right. Like, I feel like I should be going the opposite direction, but I trust her, right? Siri knows what she's doing. I'm just going to follow her soothing voice. And so I did, and I ended up not where I wanted to be. And so I'm, I'm sitting in, in Reading, going, this is not a rock climbing studio. This is someone's home. Um, and, and I don't want to climb on it. And so I should figure out where, it, like, so I'm sitting there. And the kids in the back, you know, my daughter, God bless her, uh, she's going, Dad, do you know where you're going? Do you? I'm like, yes, of, I, I absolutely know where I'm going. Just shut up. Um, and, so, and so, you know, at this point, I'm, like, trying to Google it. And the, the address that's coming up on Google is the exact same address that I had punched into uh, Google Maps earlier, so I know that's not going to help. So then I, I just decide to drive north, because I know it's north. And so I just start driving north, and of course, I, I, I'm, at this point, I'm running late. I was going to be early, um, but now I'm running late, and I've got a car full of kids, and my 10-year-old keeps going, Dad, I don't think you know where we're going. Um, my friend says, I'm like, stop it. I know where we're going. Just stop. Shut. And so, you know, and then, of course, you're getting behind people who who look at the speed limit sign and they take it seriously, right? And so, and I don't know about you, I think it's, it's kind of, it's very ambiguous, the speed limit sign. Like, are we talking about the limit on the, on the, the bottom end or the top end? Like, I think a, a range would actually be more helpful. Like, you can go between 55 and 75. That would be more helpful for me. But, um, so these people are taking it as the top end, and so they're like a shade under that speed limit. And I'm behind them, and I'm just like, ah, we have got... I get, right? So it's just not going well. So I, I didn't do really well with that last night. And, you know, especially in places like this, we, we tend to talk about anger as the kind of thing that you should not have, that you should avoid, that you should figure out how to kind of take care of. And there's lots of great passages in Scripture that talk about why anger, like what I had last night, is kind of misplaced, that, that it doesn't really get us the life that we were made for. 
I mean, that kind of anger could cause me to do all sorts of stupid things, right? Like, drive too closely to the person who's obeying the speed limit in hopes that they might choose to not obey the speed limit. Pass them somewhere where I shouldn't pass them. Um, Try to Google things on my phone while I'm driving. All sorts of really bad things could happen because I'm angry and anxious. So anger can be a really bad thing. But sometimes, anger is actually the appropriate response. Sometimes, anger is the right response to something that we see that is not the way it ought to be, something that needs to be changed, something that's unjust. So we started a series. Last week, we, we started in this, uh, this letter that we find in the New Testament called Galatians. Uh, it's written by a guy named Paul, one of the leaders of the early church to a church in what was then Asia Minor, what now we would consider Turkey. And we're, we're going to take a, a few weeks to work through this, this text, this letter, and ask the question, kind of, what is going on in this community that Paul's addressing, and what can we take away from it? What might it mean for us? So last week we talked a little bit about Paul's understanding of calling, and what that meant for him, and, and what it means for us. Well, this week... I want to look a little bit about, I mean, Paul starts to get into the meat of this letter, what he's really talking about, but he begins with an illustration to kind of give an example of what he's talking about. So he begins, first of all, as, as he, he intros the letter, at, with a greeting. He, he typically has a greeting. If you're familiar with the New Testament all and you read some of Paul's letters, he, he starts most of his letters with some kind of very, very effusive greeting that's kind of affirming the people he's writing to, and it's, it's very cool, like a, kind of like a, a friend writing to you. This letter is kind of different. As he writes this letter, he, he does kind of a standard greeting in the beginning, but then he pretty quickly gets to this in, in verse 6 of Galatians chapter 1. He says... <clears throat> I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God, who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. It's not a particularly warm greeting. Not the kind of thing you really want to hear. Uh, you know, if... if your mom calls you on the phone over the holidays. The last thing you want to get is the, hi, honey, it's mom. I'm pretty disappointed in you, right? Like, that's never really a great intro to a warm conversation. And this is some of the feeling that you get as Paul intros this. He's, he's angry. This is not a happy letter. This is a letter he's writing to set them straight. So then, of course, we have to ask, like, what's he setting them straight from? And Paul enters into this letter with an illustration. He starts by kind of laying out his story. We're not going to read the whole thing. You can read it in, you know, if you have a Bible. If you don't, we have Bibles in the back. We encourage you to grab them. They sit on the countertop out in the foyer. But you can read in Galatians, he kind of gives a little bit of his background and talks about how he was called to, to minister to Gentiles, to, to tell Gentiles about Jesus and his death and resurrection, his teaching, what it looks like to live in the way of Jesus together. Now, Gentiles, of course, are anybody who's not Jewish. And, and Paul kind of lays out how all of the leaders of this early Jesus movement saw what he was doing and were af- very affirming of that. They're like, yeah, that's the thing you're supposed to do. Go work with the Gentiles. That's awesome. 
And that kind of brings us to this point. We're going to start in uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 9. And we're going to read a little bit about how kind of Paul starts this letter that has a little bit of a bite to it. Paul writes, uh, beginning in verse 9, James, Peter, and John, these are church leaders, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me. And they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. Barnabas was a guy who traveled with him and worked with Gentiles. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I have always been eager to do. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers, who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like these Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean that Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if, if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Okay, so what's going on? So originally, the Christian faith was kind of birthed out of the Jewish faith. It wasn't kind of started as this new religion. The followers of Jesus didn't kind of say, hey, we're going to start this this new religion, and we're going to make it around Jesus. No, these were Jewish people who saw Jesus as the fulfillment of their hopes, the kind of the completion of everything they had longed for in Judaism. So it it was like a Jewish sect. And the Jewish faith was kind of fundamentally oriented around this kind of inclusivity, who was in the family of God. And it was marked out in the law of Moses, kind of what we might call the Old Testament, by all of these different kind of external markers, whether someone kept the Sabbath, uh, whether they adhered to the food laws, you know, and, and chose not to eat certain foods that were deemed unclean, and whether they were circumcised. These were all markers, ways that people kind of determined who was in and who was out. It was very much an insider-outsider mentality. But for the followers of Christ, they no longer understood inclusion in God's family to be based on those things. Now, it's what they, they looked at it as what Paul talked about as being made right with God. That in Christ, it was an internal transformation that happened, that determined who was in the family of God. It wasn't about um, religious ritual or these 
these religious practices. It wasn't about this kind of ethnicity. None of that. None of these ideologies, none of those things determined who was included or excluded. You were included in Christ. As Paul said, as we read earlier in Galatians, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That it's this kind of internal shift, this internal change that indicates who's in the family, who's welcomed in. Now that doesn't mean that you lose your personality. It doesn't mean you stop being who you are. But it does mean that it's not those external things that determines whether or not you're part of God's family. That's why suddenly Peter had found it okay to eat with the Gentiles. If you remember what Paul started out with, like before those people who were kind of from Jerusalem came, he had no problem hanging out with other Gentiles and eating food, having a meal. That wasn't a problem for him. But then, friends of James shows up, and James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. People who are close to him show up, and Peter starts to get a little bit antsy. He starts to feel a little uncomfortable. He starts to worry about how it might look that he's hanging out with all of these uncircumcised Gentiles who don't adhere to the Jewish regulations. What's that going to look like? What, what's going to happen when the whisper down the lane takes place and suddenly back in Jerusalem they hear that Peter's hanging out and eating with these people? And so he stops. Now, for us, that may not sound like that big a deal because, like, you stop eating with someone. Okay? It's kind of a bummer, right? But table fellowship in this ancient culture was a completely different thing. It was this sense of, like, welcoming someone not just to dine with you, but, but into your life. It was an affirmation of friendship, of welcoming. New Testament scholar Craig Keener says this about what the withdrawing from table fellowship would have done. He said, withdrawing from table fellowship with culturally different Christians made them second-class citizens, violated the unity of the church, and hence insulted the cross of Christ. Although Peter and others undoubtedly claimed to oppose racism, they accommodated it on what they saw as minor points to keep peace, whereas Paul felt that any degree of racial separatism or segregation challenged the very heart of the gospel. So Peter, as this kind of larger-than-life figure within the church, was leading this revolution in the wrong direction. He was taking people, from Paul's perspective, against the good news of Jesus. That This wasn't just kind of like an ancillary thing that kind of needed to get sorted out, but this is core to what it meant to actually buy into the message of Jesus, to actually believe Jesus's, his his teaching, his message about what it looks like to be the people of God. This flew in the face of it. Peter was again, whereas up until this point, the church was kind of noted by its inclusivity, by how diverse it was, by how many people were a part of this from lots of different places. Suddenly, Peter started throwing up walls, throwing up hurdles that people needed to jump over to get in. And Paul was furious. Peter was saying, it's about whether or not you're circumcised, whether or not you eat the right foods, whether or not you follow these religious traditions that make you a legitimate member of God's family. And Paul wasn't having any of it. And so he confronts 
Peter. And this is, I mean, even now, like if somebody was upset with me because of something I was saying and they stood up and confronted me in front of you, this would be uncomfortable, right? Like you'd be like, whoo, wow, this is a little, yeah, maybe they should have done this some other time. Like that would be uncomfortable here. In this ancient culture, this was completely against social norms. You did not confront someone publicly. This was a big deal. Paul calls him out in front of everyone, probably humiliating, because he wanted to make a point that this wasn't just a minor detail in this way of Jesus. This was central. This welcoming of all people, this this openness of God's family to anyone, regardless of ethnicity, social status, ideology, nationality. This was core to the message. This was what Jesus came for, to open the door wide to all who would come. That you didn't have to qualify, you didn't have to do something to make yourself legitimate. That you were legitimated, is that a word? That it was Christ himself who made us legitimate who included us in, not something that we did. Now, you might be thinking, as you hear this, like, yeah, that, that is a great message that I'm sure people in the, like, 50s and 60s really needed to hear a lot, right? Like, I'm glad that, hopefully, you know, that, yeah, that I'm glad that was taken care of, um, and now we're ready to, to move on. But are we? Because... Y- you probably, like, you, you probably don't care and, and would welcome anybody of any ethnicity or nationality or socioeconomic status or political ideology to walk into this door and sit down beside you somewhere. You probably have no problem with anyone from, from any background working alongside of you, eating in the same restaurant that you're eating in. So there's not a problem, right? But the question isn't, would you let somebody from a, who's different than you eat in the same restaurant? It's, would you welcome them at your table? Could they eat with you in your home? Would you open your life to them? This is what we're talking about. A number of years ago, so uh, before I did the pastor thing, I worked with a, a nonprofit organization that worked with college students. And one of the things we would do over the summer is we would take students um, on, to different cities around the country, and we'd spend a few weeks uh, working with uh, different uh, nonprofits, ministries that were doing work in the cities, doing justice work. Um, often it was with churches and partner organizations. And we had one in Philadelphia called Gateway. And one summer we had 27 or so students kind of in Philly for the summer. And one of them was a young woman named Jess. Jess came from a very affluent background, um, went to Bucknell University, and uh, she had never really done anything like this before, but she had kind of had this awakening in college where she'd kind of grown up in a church background but had this encounter in college with this community of people who were following Jesus that she would say she came to faith in new ways in college. She was like, wow, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. All right. And so she took a summer, and she spent it in Philly. And while they were there, they were working with some homeless shelters. And that was cool. You know, it's always fun to be able to kind of go in and, serve some people who are in need and give them some food, maybe say hi to them, make them feel, feel warm, and that, that made the college students feel warm, and that was great all the way around. But the person who was running the shelter one time, um, she was, one night she was like, hey, we're going to do something special tonight. I 
like, oh, what's that? We're going to give everyone, and it was a women's shelter they're working in, so she, um, she had just the women who were on the team. She's like, we're going to give all the women a pedicure. We're going to wash their feet, we're going to do their nails. We're going to spend the evening doing that. And they're like, oh, that's, that's, uh, yeah. Right? That, that's a little uncomfortable. That's a little different than just giving someone something. That's taking their feet in your hands and washing it. And, and even if you're doing that with someone who you imagine has showered regularly and is relatively clean, that can be uncomfortable. If you don't know whether or not that's true, you should just join us at our love feast twice a year, right? Like that's, those are the places where we do foot washing. And I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people where they're like, I would love to come, but the, the foot thing. That's just, I, I don't know. Um, why? Because it's, it's intimate, right? It's, it's hard to take someone's foot in your hand to wash it. Like, that's, a, that's an intimate thing. But they did. They, they washed these women's feet. They, they painted their nails. They, they took care of them. But then it got even weirder. Then the women whose feet they washed turned around and washed their feet and gave them pedicures care of them. Ten years later, I was at a conference for staff um, who were doing this, and, and Jess stood up and was sharing. And she was like, that moment changed my life. Because it changed how I viewed people who were homeless. It, it put me on the same level. It took away this kind of dividing wall, this separation, where it was me as the affluent, wealthy person who had everything to offer, and them as the the poor person who had really nothing to give. And for this moment, we were equals. They served me, I served them, and it, it changed me. Today, uh, Jess actually lives in the city of Philadelphia and works as a counselor with kids who are, are struggling. That is the radicalness of this way of Jesus. This, this kind of wall, kind of crushing way that welcomes all people in. That the walls that we erect, the artificial boundaries that we put up, that there's no place for those in the way of Jesus. In fact, they serve as, as barriers to the way of Jesus actually being lived out in the world. So who is it in your life that you struggle to welcome in? For many of us, it can become really easy to caricature people in a certain way. Especially if we don't know them, right? If, if we don't know anyone who's like that, or, or maybe at one point in our life, we interacted with someone who was like that. And, and so we developed this caricature where all of those people are like this. Maybe it's people of a particular ethnicity. You know, we, we had this negative interaction with someone way back, or we had a family member who used to tell us about their interactions with those people, and it shaped the way that we viewed them, even today. Maybe it's the part of the country they hail from. You know, suddenly we hear a little bit of a, a particular accent, and we've got them figured out. We know what they're like. Maybe it's people from a particular political ideology. The moment we find out who they voted for or what way they lean, we know everything about them. 
and we want nothing to do with them. Unless they lean the same way we do, in which case they're potentially our best friends. But all of these things drive wedges between us and people whom Jesus is trying to throw the door open to. Jesus levels the playing field and invites all of us to be reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. That that is the mission of Jesus. Putting us in right relationship with God and with one another. This is what he's doing. And this is what he invites us to participate in. Right? To live as though it's true. Even though it's not fully realized now. But to live as though this is reality. That this is the true way of life that we've been created for. This is what the way of Jesus leads us to. This tearing down walls and reconciling with one another because we've been reconciled to God. We've been given grace so that we can offer grace to others. And so the divisions come down. There's no longer a them and us to steal a line from you too. There is no them. There's only us. We begin to understand that though it takes a lot of grace to open ourselves up to those people, we recognize the amount of grace that we have required in our lives, what it's taken for us to be reconciled, to be brought into God's family. It's kind of like welcoming someone to someone else's home, right? Like, I don't know if you've ever been to someone, to a party at someone's house. Um, This has happened to me on numerous occasions, and I don't know if it's just kind of because I'm incredibly extroverted, and so it, I'm an easy target. But, you know, if you get there a little early and they're kind of prepet- making preparations, um, sometimes they might stick you at the door like, hey, as people come, can you just kind of welcome them in? Uh, you know, greet them, tell them where to put their coat, all that stuff. So I've found myself in that position on numerous occasions. You know what would be really weird? If, like, someone showed up to the party, and because of a particular bias that I had, I was like, you know what? This is actually, this is not the party for you. Your party is pro- it's probably down the street somewhere, but you're not here, not here. Like, wouldn't that just be a little awkward? Like, can you imagine the conversation I'm having with the person who owns the house and is running the party? Like, hey, what about that guy? Oh, yeah. Well, he was, like, wearing this shirt that said this thing on it that I found particularly offensive, and so I just told him not to worry about it. Like, wouldn't that just be strange, right? Like, it's bogus, that you would never do that. It's not your home. But for those of us who are trying to live out the way of Jesus, who believe that we've been welcomed into God's family, we have no right to erect barriers to others to have access. Regardless of whether they're right or wrong, whether we agree with them or disagree with them, it is not our place to divide the family up. We don't get that privilege, that power. In Christ, God opens the door to all people. And as people looking to follow Jesus, we get invited into living that out in our day-to-day lives, into opening the door wide to anyone who wants to come in. 
regardless of whether or not we agree with them, regardless of their background, their ethnicity, their political ideology, etc. So how do we begin to live that out? What does it look like to live in that reality? It's not easy. In fact, for most of us, it's pushing uphill. It's pushing against lots of preconceived ideas, years of kind of um, these hard-worn ways that we view the world and view others. You might have heard about a a movie coming out called Hidden Figures. Um, It's based on a book by Margot Lee Shetterly that talks about this kind of little-known group of women, at least up until this point, that um, post-World War II, there were a number of different organizations, including our federal government, that began hiring women because a lot of the men who would typically take those roles um, were enlisted, they were fighting. And so one particular organization is kind of the, the one that eventually would become NASA. They were looking to hire mathematicians. Uh, they called them computers. The original computers were actually people who would compute things. Um, and so they were looking to hire computers. And uh, so there were a number of women who were hired to do this job, women who were good at math, who traditionally would have only been able to be like teachers, math teachers, were hired to, to serve in this role, mathematicians for this organization. A number of them were African-American women. Now, even though this is kind of revolutionary in the 50s, it was still in Langley, Virginia. And Virginia was a, a state that had a lot of segregation. And so even though there's these, these African-American women who are serving in these prominent roles as mathematicians, they still had a room to their own. They had a, uh, a bathroom that they had to use, a water fountain they had to drink from, and they had a table that they had to eat from. It was the colored computers table. And there was a woman in that group who, uh, I don't believe she's mentioned in the movie, I haven't seen the movie, but I don't think she's in it. Her name is Miriam, was Miriam Mann. And Miriam did this small thing every day. Every day she'd go to lunch and she'd see the, the little sign on the table that said, Colored Computers Table. And every day she'd fold up the sign and she'd put it in her purse and she'd take it home. And the next day she'd go and there'd be another sign that said, Colored Computers Table. And she'd fold it up and put it in her purse and take it home. Again and again and again until one day they stopped putting the sign up. And, I mean, it's, it's not a huge thing. And you could argue, you know, what was the lasting impact of that one act? And sure, by itself, if she was the only person doing anything, maybe not much. But as part of a larger community taking steps to work towards equality, it was a significant, albeit small, step the right direction. And so I wonder for us, as we think about what it means to live as though in Christ we actually have been reconciled to God, we have been made right with God and called to be made right with others, what it would look like for us to identify what are the small signs in our lives that need to be taken down? What, what are the, you know, Probably none of us are walking around as flaming racists or people who have shirts that say, 
I hate people on the other side of the political divide, right? Like we don't, we don't wear that stuff on our sleeve. But we all battle these ways in which we caricature other people. We, we push them back. We create distance. What would it look like for us to begin to identify what those little signs are and step by step, day by day, start taking them down? Start removing them. I think there was a pretty cool example of this this past week in my life. Uh, I had someone who had called me up and asked if we could get together to talk about something. Which isn't generally my favorite kind of phone call. Um, You know, if that's followed by a kind of a brief summary and there's laughter, then that's cool. But this wasn't one of those. It was a bit more cryptic than that. Like, there was a period at the end of that statement. And that's never really good. Like, it's never like hey, there's this, I just think you're so awesome, so I wanted to get together and talk to you, right? It's not usually how those things go. And so I was slightly anxious about how this conversation might play out. And, uh, you know, this individual came here, and we met back in my office, and uh, he was like, yeah, I, I just needed to get some clarity on some things. Because from some things he had observed, he was thinking that we might be on the different side, on, a, on different sides of some, some issues that he thought were pretty important. And it's interesting, as we, as we talked through some things, we turned out to not be that far, even far at all from, from each other. But honestly, I feel like that didn't matter at all. What was amazing to me was his posture in the whole thing. He's like, look, I'm not mad. I'm not even saying I'm right. I just want to hear where you're coming from. I want to understand what you think and why you think it. Like, this is kind of where I am. This is what I think. But I want to hear what you think and why. That matters to me. I was like, oh my goodness. What an amazing conversation to have, right? Because one of the biggest challenges that we face now is that everyone's so busy yelling at people who disagree with them that none of us are talking about what the real issues are and how to move forward together, right? It's impossible to have conversations because we're so busy screaming at each other. It was an amazing conversation to have. I would say we're closer now than we were prior to that conversation. Not because we agreed on everything, but because it wasn't about that. It was about having a conversation. And I wonder what it would look like for us to begin to identify who those people are in our lives who we've kind of written off because we think they're too far gone for us in a particular area. And again, for each of us that might be different. What would it look like to re-engage? Particularly, and I don't think this is, this isn't just for people who would identify as Christians, but particularly for those of us who would say we're followers of Jesus. You know, Paul's talking to a, a church community and he's saying, look, this is not the good news of Jesus. I don't know what it is, but it's not Jesus. This is not how people who take seriously Jesus' death and resurrection and his teaching, this is not how they live, this is not how they act. And so particularly for those of us who would claim to be followers of Jesus, are there others that we choose to not associate with that we keep at arm's length because we disagree about some things, because we see this stuff differently, because of where they come from or how they speak, 
What are the barriers that we erect? What are the signs that we put up? And how might we begin to, day by day, little by little, take those down? Maybe you're ready to rip the Band-Aid off. Maybe someone's here is like, no, I'm just going all in. Great. But maybe, maybe you're not ready for that. How might you begin to open up just a little bit? Take one step closer towards someone who's different than you. Build some bridges. Build a relationship. Learn how to reconcile with someone who's different than you. Because Paul thinks that's central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So for those of us who are serious about figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus together, that's not like a side issue. It's not something we can maybe someday think about. It's core to what it means. So how might we begin to live that out together? What are those signs in your life? So I'd encourage you this week to begin thinking, praying, reflecting, and asking yourself, what signs exist in your life? What are, what are the subtle things that you do, the, the subtle practices that you have, the subtle thoughts that you think that create division between you and other people? And how might you begin to take steps to take those down? All right, we're going to take... Um, Father, um, I am really grateful that you welcome me, us, as most of us here are Gentiles. Um, I'm really grateful that you welcome us into your family, that we are people who have been welcomed in, not because we all um, observe the Sabbath or that we all are, you know, obeying the food laws or anything like that, that it's not because of that, but in Jesus you have welcomed us in. And so, God, we we are grateful for your, your grace and your love. And I pray that I, that we, would learn to live out of that grace and love in our lives with one another and with others outside of these four walls. Um, Learning to live lives of reconciliation, live lives of love, welcoming people, inviting them in, because we've been invited in. So thank you, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name.